Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. All right, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who could know it? Uh, We are in the middle of our myths series where we're taking misconceptions about uh, the scripture and theology and life in general. And we are looking at these and trying to, uh, today we're looking specifically at Jeremiah 17.9 about the deceitful heart. I'll say this is a a tough verse. I had a hard time uh, putting this together this week because there are pitfalls on both sides. Uh, There are nuances that that make it very difficult to not fall into a trap on one side or the other in these myths. So let me say this about this series in particular and how these myths creep up. They tend tend to creep up whenever we we focus too... uh, too much on one verse without seeing the context, the context of the verse and the context of the scripture as a whole. So you've heard the phrase, uh, don't miss the forest for the trees. Well, we tend to zoom so far in and we can see the tree in front of us, but we don't know how it fits into the rest of the forest. We don't know how, uh, we don't know what sense it makes in the big picture. And so that's happened here in, uh, in Jeremiah Uh, We're going to zoom in today and see the context directly around it. What what, what was Jeremiah's original intent when he wrote this? What was the message that was supposed to be there? And then we're going to look out and we're going to see how this fits in to the context of the rest of Scripture. And there's one other thing that we have to watch out for whenever we are uh, looking at these myths. You've got to watch out for swinging pendulums. Whenever you have believed one thing for so long and you're trying to to pull it to the other side, it can tend to swing out into the other side. And like I said before, you you end up in a ditch on the other side. So you've got these swinging pendulums because you're either going to overstate the case or you're, you're using exaggeration to try and make the point. We have to be very careful of these swinging pendulums. We have to try and, and find where the truth actually lies because it's happened in this passage. There are at least three myths around Jeremiah and what we've believed about the state of our heart. And here's why this is important. What you believe about the state of your heart will determine where you put your trust. What you believe about the state of your heart will determine where you put your trust. It'll affect the way that you deal with sin. It'll affect the way that you view other people. It'll affect the way you view your desires. It affects the whole of your discipleship, and most of all, it affects your relationship with God. So what we believe about the state of our heart will determine where we put our trust. So let's jump into Jeremiah, and I'll give you some of the context for what he's saying here. Jeremiah was a prophet who was speaking to Jews who had gone into exile because they they didn't trust in the Lord. They tried to find trust in themselves. So at the beginning of the book, God's speaking through Jeremiah, and he says, he says my, my people have committed two evils. He's laying out why they're in exile. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. This is going to be an important image. To hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. So God is presenting himself here as a fountain of living 
water. And he says that, uh, you know, this is the people's sin, that they have, they've turned away from, from this fountain of living water and tried to find their own source, to be their own source of water and life and vitality. They've trusted in themselves and tried to find life apart from the life giver. And so over and over again, Jeremiah is asking the people, where is your trust? What are you putting your trust in? Where's your anchor point? What are you trusting in? And so, the beginning of chapter 17, he presents the heart as this stone tablet. And he says, the sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus, with a diamond point. It's engraved upon the tablet of their heart. So he's showing that the heart is like a, it's like a stone hard heart here where their sin is literally being chiseled into it. Now, you remember uh, three weeks ago on Father's Day, we talked about Deuteronomy 6 and writing the word of God on our hearts. This is saying they did the opposite. Instead of writing the word of God on their hearts, they, they have had their sins chiseled into it, into their stone hard hearts. So Jeremiah is stating again, this is a trust issue. Where am I putting my trust, my faith, my confidence? And so he gives us a picture of two trees. He says, uh, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. Mankind and flesh. And whose heart turns away from the Lord. These are the two sins, again. They've turned away from the Lord, the fountain of living water, and they've tried to be a source for themselves. He says, this kind of person will be like a bush in the desert, will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony waste in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Now, the, the bush here is, is not translated here, but they've identified it as this sort of juniper bush, this juniper tree that'll grow in the, the desert in stony places. And you'll notice even... Even though it's growing, it's, it, it grows all twisted and warped as it, as it grows up. And it lives in these, these stony, dry places. Well, notice, uh, you know, Jeremiah says that this bush represents the person who makes flesh his strength. Jeremiah's emphasizing again, this is primarily an issue of where we're putting our trust. Are you putting it in yourself, in your flesh, in the flesh of others, in man-made systems of support and security? Where is your trust? The person who does this, he says, is like a juniper bush. It's, it's living in stony waste that cannot see when prosperity comes. Because you see, even, even in the desert, it rains. Sometimes you'll even get a downpour. But when it rains, it's not set up. This tree is not set up to take in the rain the same way. Its leaves may be a little greener, but it's not gonna really flourish even in a good rain, because it's set up for the desert. But now we get a contrasting picture. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. It says, in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. There's a repetition here that's, that's really cool because it's more than just repetition. He's saying, I'm trusting in the Lord for the things that I need, for, for everything that he's providing, but my trust is the Lord. He is the object of my trust. He is the one that I'm resting on. He is the very object of it. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream, 
It will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. It will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Notice two things about this tree. First, it's planted. It's planted by the water. This is passive. In order for a tree to be replanted somewhere, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to uproot it from all the things that it's, been, that it's been getting its life from. All the places that its, that it, its heart has gripped and has got to be picked up and replanted over here by the stream. That's the act of God. This is God's work. The tree is planted by the water. But look, it extends its roots by the stream. This tree extends its roots. Literally, it's saying it actively thrusts its roots down into the stream. You remember, you remember when we, uh, three weeks ago, we were talking about a certain Hebrew verb form that I said was like when I was camping and there was the spider and I smashed it with my shoe and it exploded because it was pregnant into a bazillion baby spiders. That's the Hebrew verb form here that is using the same one. It's showing either plurality or one commentator described it as an intense, uh, an intensive or vigorous action. It's actively thrusting its roots down toward the stream as if its life depended on it. And so the tree is planted, this is God's work, but the tree is actively thrusting its roots. It's digging them down toward the stream, toward the source of its life and vitality. This is our response to God's work. Now notice two other things about this tree. Besides where it's planted and where its roots are dug down into, what do you notice that's, that's different about these two trees? It's their response to the external stimuli, to the, the environmental pressures that come around it, the, the rain and the heat and the drought. The way that these trees respond is completely different. You'll notice uh, the tree that's by the water, it will not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves will be green. It will not be anxious in a year of drought. This heat and this drought that, that, that come, are the responses of these trees is dramatically different. The first tree couldn't even see or experience prosperity when it hit it in the face. This tree is lush and green and bears fruit even in the scorching heat and drought. It's not anxious. It's not anxious when those situations come, when the heat bears down, because it's planted by the stream. It's not dependent on the rain as its source, because it's got its, it's, got its source of water. So the big difference between these two trees is the way they respond to the environment around it. This is, this is because that uh, where they're planted and where they're putting the roots. So Jeremiah is saying again, where is your anchor point? Where are your roots dug down? Where, where are you putting your trust and your confidence? One way to tell is right here. What are you worried about? What are you anxious about? What do you spend your time worrying about? That's a great way to see where am I extending my roots? What am I worried about? If it's in your job, you're going to spend a lot of time and energy trying to secure a position that could dry up at any moment. Uh, it, whether through a layoff or through the economy tanking. If it's in your reputation, you're going to spend a lot of time and energy being your own PR manager. That takes a lot of time and energy to be your own PR manager and make sure people see you in the right light. If it's in your family, you're going to be spending a lot of time trying to hold on to them instead of realizing that God is the one who's protecting them. He's the one who's providing so one way to see where you're actively extending your roots, what are you worrying about? But on the positive side of things, 
What is this? What, 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 what does green look like to you? What does it look like to yield fruit? What does success look like to you? Does it look like, does it look like your achievements? Does it, does it look like your relationships or your, your material possessions? Both of these things, what we worry about and, and, and what we see as flourishing they show us where we're, where we're sending our roots. So where are you planted? This is God's work. Where are you planted? But then where are you actively extending your roots? This is our response to God's work. And this is the context right before Jeremiah 17, 9 about the condition of the heart. Where are you putting your trust? Are you putting it in yourself or are you putting it in God? So we come to our verse here. 17.9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand this heart? This verse is describing the human condition apart from God. This is the natural disposition of every person. The human condition. It's like a tree in the desert that couldn't experience anything good if it hit it in the face. Jeremiah is fighting a myth that every single one of us have believed at one point or another, that I'm basically good. We, we've believed at some point or another in our lives, and sometimes we go back to that belief, that I'm basically good, right? That, that I'm not all that bad, I might do some bad things, but I'm humanitarian-minded. I, I, I give to charities, I kiss my mom, right? Every mafia guy kisses his mom, right? That's not a good indicator, but the myth is that I'm, that I'm basically pretty good. This is a picture that Jeremiah is painting here. It's a picture of, for, for people who don't see the desperate nature of their situation, the incurable sickness of our hearts. They don't realize that the human condition is terminal. And so for the people who rely on themselves and think they're pretty good. Jeremiah says, no, there is no good apart from God. There is, apart from God, there's no good in you. The heart is desperately sick because sin entered the world. The word translated here, uh, desperately sick, is literally incurable. It's usually, talked, uh, it's usually used about an incurable wound, like one that's festering and just will not heal. It's incurable. Apart from Christ, we are trees with our roots dug down deep in the dust of the desert out in the middle of nowhere. It's incurable. There's no way out. You cannot fix your problem. You cannot get to the source of water on your own, which is why Isaiah tells us that the very best that we have to bring, the, the thing that you bring to God and you say, hey, look, Here's what I bring to the relationship. Here's what I'm bringing to the table. The very best thing that you have to bring to God, Isaiah says, is like filthy rags. Paul says it this way, quoting the Psalms. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That's pretty comprehensive. Now listen, God made creation good. Every time that he would create in, in Genesis, he would say, this is good. But sin came in and corrupted. And because of sin, you will never come to Christ apart from realizing that you are desperately in need of him and that there is no other source of water because he is the living water. 
That's the myth Jeremiah is fighting, that we're all basically good. He says, no, if you believe that, you end up trusting in yourself, you'll be like that tree in the desert, withered and twisted. There's no hope apart from Christ. And that's why what you believe about the state of your heart determines where you put your trust. No matter how trustworthy you think God is, you may think that he's trustworthy, even if you think that. If you think that your heart apart from him is basically good, you're not gonna rely on him. If you've not made that decision to follow Christ, you're banking on being good enough, on something finite to save you. So, Jeremiah was fighting that myth that we're all basically good, but there's another myth that I want to focus on that has invaded the church. This myth, uh, we've looked at this verse with blinders on. Remember the tree, we've seen the tree, but we missed how it fits in to the forest. What Jeremiah said about the wicked heart applies very specifically to that desert tree, the one that hasn't been replanted, the one that doesn't have a new heart, When we believe our heart is still desperately sick after coming to Christ, we miss the context. The new heart, the tree planted by water. So before, we believed that we were all basically good, but Jeremiah busted that myth. But too many Christians now are holding onto a new myth that your heart is still wicked and sick and incurable even after you come to Christ. Look what Ezekiel prophesies. Ezekiel was another one, he was another prophet who was prophesying to these Jews who were in exile. And God's speaking through him and he says, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and what? You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. New heart, new spirit, no more stone, living, beating flesh. That's the promise. Paul says it this way, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Using Jeremiah's tree metaphor, your life has been uprooted from all the things that you were putting your faith and trust in before, and it has been replanted next to a spring. You are new, you are alive, you are flourishing. If you are in Christ, hear me, hear me clearly, if you are in Christ, your heart is good. If you are in Christ, your heart has been made good. What would that mean if you believed that? If if you believed it, see we said, what I believe about the state of my heart will determine where I put my trust. What does it change? What changes if you believe that your heart is good? Let's say it the other way. If I believe the myth that my heart is still sick, my trust will be in my circumstances, in the weather, 
in the metaphor, the, the rain and the, the heat and the drought. Because if I can't trust myself to respond to the external environment around me, I better try and control the environment. So your trust will be in your circumstances. You'll try to control them so you get the right outcomes. That means that it'll directly affect how you deal with suffering. We spend so much time and energy trying to control the things around us to try and make the heat and the drought not come. Think of how much energy we spend trying to make sure the heat and the drought don't come. But it comes, doesn't it? The heat and the drought come. When they come, when everything comes crashing down, when you don't get the job, when a family member gets sick, when you get sick, you'll be more prone to respond in fear and anxiety. You'll be more prone to lash out in anger. If you believe your heart is still desperately wicked after coming to Christ, it will affect the way that you view sin in your life. It will affect the way you view sin, whether you believe there's any hope in overcoming the, the things that are constantly plaguing you in your life that you can't seem to, to, to get out if you believe that there's a duality in you, sort of this Jekyll and Hyde that's, that's fighting uh, inside your heart, that your heart is, is literally pulled in two directions, like you have a, a Bruce Bannister and an Incredible Hulk, you're not going to think you can overcome sin. You, you'll give up and you'll give in or else you'll try to suppress your desires in unhealthy ways. Now, I, I struggled so much trying to get this together and trying to figure out if I should include this piece or not, but I think it's so important. In Romans, there's a, there, Romans 7 is something that so many of us in here have read as if it was Paul's experience as a new creature. When Paul says in Romans 7, I'm not doing the things I want to do and I'm doing all the things I hate, so many of us have read that as a current experience because we identify with his struggle on some level. We think that's what he's, we think he's talking about our experience now. It's another place where we've missed the forest for the trees. I'm gonna play my cards ahead of time and I'm just gonna let you know where we're going because this, this is a hard, uh, uh, hard piece to get around. When Paul is talking in Romans 7 about not being able to do the things he wants to do, he's talking very specifically. He's, he's talking in the first person and he's talking in the present tense, but there's a, there's a grammatical category called the gnomic present. It just means it's like a proverb, the grass withers and the flower fades. It's a timeless truth. And what Paul is saying in Romans 7 is that anyone who tries to fight the flesh with the law will not be able to do it because the law is not enough. To use Jeremiah's analogy, it's, it's like this, this desert tree and stony wasteland and you come and you set up this post with a sign on it that represents the law and it says, hey, there is a fresh spring 50 miles east and you go, okay, like I'm a tree, I'm, I'm right here, I, I cannot get myself there. That's the pull that Paul is feeling in Romans 7. 
when he's saying, the law is showing me that I need to be over there by that stream, but I can't move. The law can't get me there. It shows me what I want and what I need, but I cannot do it. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 7. He's saying, he's giving an example of anybody that tries to fight the flesh with the law. And so listen to some of the things he says because the part that we're looking at in Romans 7 is sandwiched between two amazing promises about new life and freedom. So listen to some of the things he says in Romans 7 that we've taken to be our experience when I don't think we should. He says, I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. What I'm doing, I don't understand, for I'm not practicing the things I'd like to do. I'm doing all the things I hate. He says, nothing good dwells in me. He says, evil is present within me. He calls himself a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. If you believe this is Paul's experience as a new creation, you, will, you won't have any hope in overcoming specific sins in your life. But listen to what he says. That would make zero sense in the argument that he is making here. It's another example. We focused in so close, but we've missed the argument he's making. That was chapter seven. Listen to what he says right before it in chapter six. We walk in newness of life. Our old self was crucified with him, that is with Christ. We, were, we are no longer slaves to sin. He says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He says, though you were, past tense, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart, that good heart. For while we were in the flesh, past tense again, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now, but now, we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit, not in oldness of the letter. If Paul is talking about his current experience, when he's talking about this struggle, we have no hope, but thankfully, it's couched within this message of new life, rebirth, new heart. I'm not of flesh. Listen to what it says in chapter eight. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. He says, you are, not, uh, you are not in the flesh. Paul just said he was in the flesh, right? He says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. We've read Romans 7 and thought we were still slaves. We thought we were still bound. Paul is talking about that desert tree that tries, he sees the sign towards the river, but he can't get there. That's the struggle Paul's describing in Romans 7. Now the question is, why do I feel it? Why do I feel that pull? Because I can tell you I've sinned many times today already. Every day that you wake up, there's gonna be a battle going on. Why do I feel that pull? That's the big question. If, If... Paul is saying in Romans 7 that you're trying to fight the flesh with the law. 
But he says somewhere else in Galatians 5, he talks about the same kind of struggle, but fighting the flesh with the spirit. Fighting the flesh with the law doesn't do you any good. It just shows you your need. No amount of moral platitudes or axioms or thinking Jesus is just a good teacher will ever get me to the water. I need to be changed. I need to be replanted. But he talks in in Galatians 5 about the tree. If you're using the same analogy, he talks about this tree that's been replanted. He says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. We, we, Christ has taken off this yoke. He's taken off these chains. But we go, hey, that chain's pretty shiny. I think I'm gonna pick it up and put it back on again. No, he's saying don't subject yourself again to that yoke of slavery. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. For you were called to freedom. Only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. We who are in Christ find ourselves at a fork in the road every day. You're planted by this stream. But you remember what the tree had to do. The tree has to choose where it's gonna extend its roots. Are you gonna actively thrust those roots down into the water or are you gonna go back and start waxing nostalgic and reaching those roots back to the desert, tangling them up towards a place that doesn't give any life. See, when we are new, when we have a new heart, that doesn't mean that we don't sin, but you have a new set of desires and options in front of you that you did not have before. Now you get to choose. Now you get to choose. And so the the pull that, that Paul is talking about in Galatians 5 is different. Romans 7 is talking about this Jekyll and Hyde, this my heart is, is two places and it's just being torn apart. Galatians 5, he's talking about a new person standing, being planted. And I get a choice every day. I get a choice. Where am I going to extend those roots? Toward the stream or toward the desert? He says, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. I'm just gonna burn a hole into the TV so that you remember it next time you see it. Will not if I walk by the spirit. That doesn't mean you won't sin, but when you walk by the spirit, you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. When you walk by the spirit, you will not, can't even see the word will not. (laughs) I've struggled that too many times. Will not carry out the desire of the flesh for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For those, these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. This is the pull. It's not an internal, my heart is divided. It's a new heart finding itself in the middle of a war between the spirit on one hand and the flesh on the other. Sometimes we choose the wrong one. But the point is, there's victory, there's hope, and you have a choice because you are made new. Do not give in to the thought that I just have to sin, I have no choice. You are made new in Christ What are you going back to again and again for life and meaning and nourishment? 
Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Look, this says it's the, the, its passions and desires, the passions and desires of the flesh. See, one of, the, one of the effects, if you think your heart is bad, you're gonna shrivel those roots up or cut them off and you're gonna think, I can't trust my desires. I can't trust myself at all because my desires are inherently bad. No, the desires of the flesh have been crucified. Am I gonna want them sometimes? Yes. Sometimes they will be enticing. The, the chains will be enticing on the ground. I'll wanna pick them up again, but I have the choice. I have the choice now. Your desires, hear me, your desires are not bad. They need to be redirected. Your desires are not bad. They need to be redirected toward the stream that gives life. Now, listen, there are intense examples of this. I said, we are going to still sin at times. Sometimes we'll make the wrong choice about where we're extending those roots. There's a war going on. And so sometimes there are perpetual patterns of sins or addictions or even psychological dysfunctions. There are things that get in the way from realizing this truth. Hear me, if you, if you have an addiction, I want you to know that there's hope and that there's victory that you can get out. In Christ, there is hope and victory, but I don't want you to think it'll be easy because there are automatic responses. There are automatic responses in our bodies. When I have lived one way for so long, I do certain things without thinking. It's like breathing. I don't, it's not cognitive. I don't think about it. I just do it. And so, this, these trees were trees planted by the stream. If you have reached those roots out toward the desert for long enough, they're gonna get tangled up and it's gonna be a little harder to start bringing those back in. You have to retrain the body. You have to retrain it. Hear me again. I feel like I'm walking this line here. I'm walking such a line because I don't want you to think that you will not sin, but I want you to know there's hope and victory to get out of the patterns of sin that you're in. Walk by the Spirit. What does that even mean? Walking by the Spirit is engaging with Him through spiritual disciplines, through Bible and prayer and community and reorienting my heart through, throughout the day. Walking in the Spirit means engaging with Him in a loving relationship and submitting my life to Him again and again and again over and over and over. That's what it looks like to walk in the spirit. <laughs> J. Lewis Martin says, talking about this crucified flesh in, in Galatians 5.24, he says, that victory was decisive. The victory against the flesh, the, the crucified flesh, that victory was decisive. But he says, it's paradoxically incomplete. It's still going on. There's still sanctification. So myth number one said, I'm basically good apart from Christ. We saw that if you believe that, it leads you to trusting in yourself. And we saw that, that the truth of this is that there is no good apart from Christ. No good apart from Christ. 
Myth number two said, I'm still stuck after coming to Christ. And we saw that that leads to us attempting to control our circumstances or suppress our desires or use them as a cop-out to sin. And the truth there is that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And you are engaged in a battle where there is already a decisive victory, but it is paradoxically incomplete. You are still walking, you are still submitting, you are still actively reaching and digging those roots. Your circumstances don't determine your response. Your desires don't need to be suppressed. They need to be redirected. And there's no excuse for sin. Now, the third myth is really just a caution. I told you about the, the pendulums that, that tend to swing. If, if we've believed one thing over here, they just, they just tend to swing back and forth. We find ourselves in ditches on both sides. It was one of the hardest things about preparing for this week is there's, there's pits on both sides. So this last one is a caution. If you, if you are a Christian and that wicked heart has changed and been replanted, you've been made good at your core, but just because your heart is good, do not think for a moment that you can know the depths of your heart that you can know your motives or that your motives are always good. Be cautious, be cautious there. Your heart is, is good now, but notice what God said there about the heart. He said two things. It's deceitful more than anything else and it's desperately sick, incurable. And we saw God takes care of the incurable heart. But the question remains, is it still deceitful? Can I know it? Look at, look at what he asks. Who can understand it? Who can understand the heart? He answers it himself and says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways. God is the only one who has plumbed the depths of your heart and knows your motives. He knows your pitfalls. So even though your heart is good, I just want to give this caution. You can only know your heart insofar as you press into the one who has plumbed its depths. Press in to the one who knows your heart. Proverbs 16.2, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. 21.2, every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. We all have blind spots. The only way you can know your heart is to press into the one who knows it. Bible, prayer, community, all these things are mirrors that reflect. They reflect back on me and show me who I am. Proverbs 3, 5. A lot of you know this one. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That good heart. That good beating flesh. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. But what? What should you not do? 
Lean on your own understanding. Believe that you're good, that there's victory. But lean on Christ. Don't swing so far back the other way that you're not trusting in him and pressing in. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flows the springs of life, that living water. Jesus said something very similar to this. John, uh, John 7, uh, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Where are you plugging in to your life and nourishment and vitality? What are you trusting in? I'll leave, I'll leave you with this. So I have um, this haunting question that it, it's, it's haunted me for the past year and a half and I thought I'd share it with you because misery loves company. You can be haunted with me. I read a book a year and a half ago. It's become one of my favorite books. It's called You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. And he talks about this, this Russian sci-fi movie called Stalker. It's a very artsy movie. Uh, I'd never seen a Russian sci-fi before, I don't think. And uh, I was so engrossed. I bought the movie. I bought the, the, uh, the sci-fi novel, the Russian sci-fi novel that it's based on. And I was so engrossed into this story because of the, the question that he brings out of this. Basically what happens is, this is sort of a post-apocalyptic kind of time, but it's very subtle on the sci-fi. So you know that there was an alien invasion, but there's not really any, uh, not really any of that kind of plays out in the movie. There's just this massive zone It's this big country, basically, where the borders are all walled off. There's armed guards. Nobody can go in because it's a dangerous place. But these paid guides called stalkers will sneak people into the zone on these expeditions. And whenever they do, they're trying to get to the room. And the room is a place where you go in and it it gives you whatever your heart desires the most. And so the, this stalker uh, goes on this expedition with the professor and the writer. They don't use any of their real names. The professor and the writer go on this expedition with him. And he's telling this story on the way to the room. And he says, he says that his, his, uh, his old mentor stalker that he learned from had lost his brother in this tragic accident And he kept trying to go back to the room again and again and again because he wanted to get his brother back. He kept going on these dangerous expeditions over and over to get his brother back. But every time that he set foot in the room, he just came back with more money, more profit because that was what his heart desired the most. The room knows what your heart desires most and that's all he could come back with again and again and again. He eventually hangs himself because of he's so distraught over it. And so they're telling this story. The, the stalkers told them this story and they go through the entire movie. They come to the climax. They're at the threshold of the room. The light's coming in. And all three of them, none of them can set foot into the room because they've had this haunting question in the back of their heads. What if I don't love what I think I love? 
what if I don't love what I think I love? And so this question has haunted me for the past year and a half. It's a question that should invade every quiet time that you have. It should invade every time that you get into the scripture. It's the same one that David prayed, search my heart. It's the same one that you bring into your community. Do I love what I think I love? Do I love what I think I love? Only God can reveal that to you. If you are in Christ, you have a new heart. But that heart is only fully known by the one who has plumbed its depths. If you do not know Christ in here today, if you have not come to see him as your savior, all I want you to see is the desperation of the human condition that there is no other source of living water there. There is no way that you can be uprooted from where you are and make it to the water. It's an act of God. For everybody else, dig those roots in. Dig those roots in to the river and ask God over and over, do I love what I think I love? I'll, you know what? I'll give you this last. It's a good way to end it. Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Go to him again and again and again and again and ask the question, do I love what I think I love? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this, this story that you're telling. Thank you that your story is a redemptive story. Your story is one that takes that stone heart, removes it, and gives us something that is living and beating. God, I, I know that we still sin, that we still have things in our lives that we, that we go to for nourishment other than you. And I ask that you would help us to dig those roots deeper into your living water, that we would abide in you, that you would break us from patterns of sin, that you would show us the victory that's been won in you, that we wouldn't give in because we think that we have a torn heart, but that we would recognize the reality of the war God, help us to dig our roots deeper and deeper into your living water today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.